Tech Trends 24-7 Leaders is a passionate podcast hosted by James P. Quinn on technology innovation. It provides insightful interviews with key and inspiring innovators in areas of corporate technology, office of the future, AI, real estate, sustainability, assistive technologies, and other emerging technologies. Tech Trends 24-7 Leaders will smartly position you where your business, life, and industries are moving for the future. On today's episode, we have Jerry Marshall on the podcast. Jerry is the president and CEO of Neutrality Data Centers in Amerimar Enterprises. He oversees the acquisition, financing, redevelopment, and disposition of the company's portfolio. Neutrality owns 18 properties that span over 3.3 million square feet and over 100 megawatts of capacity in North America. They also own and operate strategic interconnected data centers and meet me rooms, providing a mix of co-location, PowerShell, and wholesale data center solutions. Jerry holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Texas with a major in real estate and an MBA from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. He's a true visionary in how he's developed interconnected data centers nationally. Welcome, Jerry. Today on the podcast, it's great to have Jerry Marshall, CEO of Neutrality. Jerry, I'm really happy to have you on the podcast today. It's great to see you and looking forward to our conversation. As I as well, Jim, and thank you for having me on. And also, I wanted to congratulate you on starting Beacons of Beacon of Hope. It looks like really a great, you're doing great things for children in need. And, and I think it's awesome that you decided to do that. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks. So, Jerry, why don't we just jump right in? I, I think that story of you and neutrality is a great one. Really how you've kind of transformed data centers in, in, into really carrier hotels. Maybe you want to just start there and give us kind of the history of how you did that, because it's a fascinating story. So it's interesting because if you look at the, the properties that we own that are in our portfolio, many of which, really almost all of which, were in the hands of what I call accidental owners. And what I mean by that is that it was somebody bought what they thought was an office building, and then they started getting knocks on the door because they happened to be on the intersection of Maine and Maine for both long haul and metro fiber optics. So they started leasing, those folks needed to get space for their live gear. And so they started leasing space to those network providers, those fiber providers. And until they got to the point where they needed to do something very expensive and creative, to get the property to the next level. And usually that means like they, they can't find any more space for outdoor gens. So they decide the next step would be to convert some interior space. And it's, it's, it's not quite that clear on how you, that can get done and, and it's going to be very expensive. And so that's when they are usually willing to sell the properties. And so that's when we come in and we improve the, the infrastructure. We make it more robust and we add additional data center space for existing customers to expand and to attract new customers, providing meet me rooms and co-location space, as well as, as powered shell space and wholesale data center space. And those the network capability and the infrastructure that we put into our data centers, such as redundant and backed up power, make the properties very attractive to not only data center users, but also uses such as a mission critical office, network operation centers, gaming facilities, life science uses, 
all of which we have in our properties today. And we're also marketing to other uses such as innovation labs and drone and autonomous vehicle hubs. So that's that's a little bit of history of how of how these properties got to where they are today. And how long, Jerry, was it was there an average in terms of how long the transformation would take? Would it be 12 months or each project was different? So I mean, it was really our predecessors that converted the properties from an office building to, well, it's commonly known as carry hotels. I usually don't like to use that term, to be frank, because when I start talking about meet your rooms in carry hotels, sometimes it sounds like I'm talking about conference rooms in Marriott's. And so I, I so we so we like to call them core interconnection facilities. But it varies over time. I think it was like a like sort of a long, slow process in some of them until they got until things really started to build momentum. And that's when they really ran out of space and were willing to sell. That's great. And now we're a couple months in on 2023. What has been your main focus and your key initiatives for you this year? Sure. So safety is really, it always is and always will be our most important priority. And it's frankly, it's, it's the first thing we always report in every one of our board meetings. We're also focused on sustainability and building out additional data center space in our existing properties as well as fostering a best-in-class workforce, as well as a, as a best-in-class customer experience. And as we're always focused on new acquisitions. Mm-hmm. And we're looking to expand that footprint, not only in North America, but also we're looking in, in Latin America, as well as Western Europe. We're looking for those facilities that, have, that are the most network-dense and fiber-rich facilities in the market, which can provide the best connectivity and the lowest latency, which leads to the highest reliability for our customers with mission-critical operations. That's great. You mentioned connectivity. I think that's one of your key drivers of the value of what you're doing. Maybe we'd spend a little time on that because I think now, obviously the portfolio is substantial and you connecting the dots, maybe take us behind the scenes there a little bit, because I think that's such a a great thing in terms of the connectivity that you've amassed over the last five years. So we look for that facility that there's usually one facility that one carrier neutral facility that's sort of head and shoulders above the the next most connected facility. So like when we bought 1102 Grand, we had about 30 networks in that property and our the next most connected building in the market had about a half a dozen. And so like, it was just very, very clear where the, the most connectivity is available. And so like we said, we focus on those properties and it, there's tremendous customer advantages to being in those properties because they can get, they can get networks to, to bid for their business. They can get primary and backup uh, connectivity in the case one network has an outage and things like that. So that is really what's the, the core driver of our facility and really drives the difference between the connectivity and what we call a quarter connection facility versus just a commodity co-location facility, which frankly is, is in my opinion, is not nearly as an attractive of an investment. Yeah, totally agree. And then Jerry, what you, you have, I think a very good window pane in terms of the current state of the, the data center market from an investment standpoint. What are you seeing nationally and globally? 
So I mean, it's remaining strong, which is interesting because debt costs have basically tripled over the past year. So we've seen new players coming into the market. It's interesting, maybe not that surprising for someone like yourself, but real estate funds are really, have really been the lead investors in some of these recent continuation funds for some of these data center companies. And they join a, a list of, of world-class investors such as infrastructure funds, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, as well as the publicly traded REITs. Of course, the big mystery is, and nobody really knows, is are the cap rates going to expand and multiples going to decrease based on the, the increased debt costs? Frankly, so far, I have not seen it in the carrier hotel space that, where we seek to buy assets. And is that, is that going to continue? Frankly, I don't know. Potential buyers might say no, but if they already own facilities, they're not willing to sell their facilities at anything less than peak pricing, even if they're not willing, even if they're willing to sell them at all. Mm -hmm. uh, like you probably remember back in 2009, when there was sort of a standoff on traditional real estate where buyers and sellers were, there was a, there was a, there was a bid ass gap. And that bid-ask gap was, was filled by buyers stepping up to meet the seller's pricing demands. And frankly, it was the first time ever I heard the term distressed buyers being used. I don't really think that this is that much different. I mean, I think that then there was much, there was less distress than what was anticipated or frankly hoped for by potential buyers. And it was a V-shaped recovery. I think you will see some marginal assets that are over-leveraged go for cap rates or multiples that reflect the new debt costs. But like I said, I don't think it's going to affect what we're looking for. And if I'm wrong, and I hope I'm wrong because it'll create opportunities for neutrality to expand its portfolio at more favorable pricing. Congratulations. I think in the number of last year, you guys acquired a in Indianapolis. You want to tell us a little about that? Sure. So that was a, a business in one of our, in camp, it's a campus of buildings we own. Indy Telecom, which is a, we own 11 buildings on the campus with 205,000 square feet. And, and that was, that facility was the lifeline facility that was a tenant in, in, in our 733 West Henry building. And it added 13, 13 customers that we purchased, including two new, I mean, 21 new, new logos to neutrality. And that was the second business in the campus that we purchased that year. Earlier that year, back in April, we purchased the 365 data center facility located at 701 West Henry, which added 30 customers to our portfolio, 22 of which were networks. It only added 800 kW of utility power, but it was really important to us at the time because prior to that, we were fully, completely 100% fully leased to powered shell tenants that included like networks as well as interconnection and colo providers. So the addition, the inventory of co-location space that we had, albeit small, really helped us address some pressing demand that we, we were receiving both from new and longtime customers we had in other locations. We continue to provide co-location services within the 30,000 square foot, 733 West Henry facility and we have connected 733 West Henry with the former 365 facility. So any customer or provider in either location 
can seamlessly provide or get service from the other data center. That's great. Sounds like a great, great story from when you started and where you are now. So again, congratulations. And then Jerry, we're starting to really see AI factoring in data center requirements and nationally and globally. What's your perspective in terms of AI and how it's going to impact the data center industry? So it's interesting. Last night, I heard a short clip of an interview that Jamie Dimon, CEO of JP Morgan Chase, was giving to Jim Cramer. And he said they currently have 300 use cases for AI. That's funny because when Jim asked him the question, I thought like, he was good. Jim thought he was good. He was asking like, like when he asked questions about like crypto and Jamie loves yeah. to bash crypto. And, uh, and I think he was pretty surprised when he said, no, we've completely embraced AI with the 300 use cases in areas such as risk, fraud, and marketing. And if you think about some of those use cases, like some of them um, require super low latency that need really need to be in an edge, edge data center, often enhanced with transmission via 5G. So like an example of that might be if, if that in a fraud situation for a bank, if they're looking, if they're verifying if a wire transfer uh, is, is legit or not, request is legit or not. And that needs to be done right away. Same with a credit card transaction, as opposed to maybe a use such as like verifying the authenticity of a check, which has a couple of days to clear. And that would be completely, completely fine to be in a hyperscale data center, mm -hmm. which doesn't necessarily have the lowest latency, but has probably has the best total cost of ownership for the, in this case, the bank. Uh, same with, with marketing. If they're trying to figure out which user to send out or rather who to send out a physical mail or two, that's not as as time sensitive and go on hyperscale data center. But if they're trying to figure out like what ad to send to which user that's browsing on their phone based on what they're browsing, that really probably needs to be in an edge data center and facilitated by 5G. I would expect banks to be on the cutting edge for artificial intelligence, especially when it comes to things like fraud protection. Mm -hmm. But I was by, by the 300 use cases they, they have today. And when you think about like how many businesses that are, that are not using AI yet that are intending on starting to use AI, uh, also like, I can tell you like, like so far I'm 0 for 2 of trying to use chat GBT because they, because both times I tried, they said that there was no, no more compute cycles available at the time. So when you think about all this, I mean, I think it bodes really, really well for future data center demand. So yeah. that's all on the customer side. From our side as operators, it really ha is having a positive impact on things like energy efficiency. We've got AI powered smart sensors that can monitor and analyze data from our electrical and mechanical equipment, detecting inefficiencies and making real-time adjustments to the systems for security, facial recognition and enhanced video systems to flag and analyze suspicious activity and just being able to predict uh, the AI, being able to predict outages before they occur, so we can go in there and do what we need to do, so the outage never happens. So I think that I think that AI is going to have a very material impact on the industry. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I, I'm currently reading a book. You've probably, you probably heard of it. It came out, I think, like a month or so again ago. It's all in on AI, and it actually talks to kind of what you were talking about. A lot of bank cases where 
They're using it for customer service and security. And they really kind of connect the dots on looking at what impacts or what benefits the corporate world will be realizing by implementing and accounting and putting it as part of their fabric as an organization. Put it on my list. That's right. Yeah, you should, definitely. And then any other technologies? I, I think in terms of, you talked about maintenance, digital twin, we're starting to see a lot. Anything else, you guys, that are key technologies that you, you think are going to be impactful in the next couple of years? I think for sustainability, I think that we, I think that they're really, I think that that's really going to have a, I think technology regard around sustainability is going to have a material impact on data centers. And when you think about it, so like right now, I mean, there's certain things that are, that are working well in data centers to help make them more energy efficient and to, and to bring down their, their carbon footprint such as things like like lithium ion batteries which really are closer to 100% efficient as opposed to what they're replacing which was 80% efficient batteries waterless cooling systems and those are that, that, those are recent technologies that have that have really I think had a positive impact on the industry but also we've got there's a lot of technology that still is developing in areas such as Hydrogen fuel cells, which can have a material impact. Now, there, you see talk about, about, or you hear talk about them being used to replace generators. I'm not qu quite there, but one thing I think is, is pretty easy to get my head around is that hydrogen fuel cells, I think it really bridged the gap, bridge a gap between when the UPS kicks in, which will last typically five to seven minutes, and before the generators need to kick in, we can insert a hydrogen, hydrogen fuel cells to maybe bridge us for a couple hours. So maybe we have time to get back on, on the on utility power before our generators need to kick in. And also to try to make generators more efficient, more environmentally friendly, I should say, is the use of biofuels. Now, the supplies are pretty limited today, but they're expected to increase rapidly. And the technology is developing to, to make them more efficient and to um, hopefully reduce the modifications or the replacements that are necessary of the diesel generators to work with less retrofit when in the existing generators. So I think those are all those are those are things that, that technologies that are that are developing to support our sustainability efforts. We seek to put on green financing which gives incentives to, to do things energy efficient as well as sustainable. And we recently closed a $45 million sustainability link loan from Oakwood Bank to support our energy efficiency and water conservation efforts mm. at our 7801 Neiman Road facility in Shawnee, Kansas. Yeah. How did that come about? I mean, obviously I know you've been very focused on sustainability and you always historically do a lot of research. How did you get to that conclusion? Because that sounds very interesting. So, I mean, it was, it was something that we, it's something that we had actually told the bank we wanted to do. And they were really excited about it because like, just like, just like we are looking to make the world a better place. It's important to, to our stakeholders. It's important to our customers and the stakeholders of the bank as well. So they were all over it, but it was, but it was interesting. I mean, crafting the language and the loan agreement was a joint effort. I mean, it wasn't like we just took boilerplate language off the shelf and, and, and it shoved it in there. It had to be, 
It had to be custom developed for what was aggressive but achievable. Very interesting. And then, Jay, what, what, how do you look at kind of the rest of 23 going to 24 and 20? Where, where do you see kind of kind of where the market's going? What are your thoughts on the, the next couple of years? So it's interesting. I think that on, I think the M&A front will probably be very, very active. That's the direction you're, you're thinking about for this question. Yes. I think that the assets, the, re the really dear assets, the coveted assets are going to continue to get the highest level of attention from, from capital sources. I mean, if you think about all the money that used to go into buying office buildings, that's no, that is Boy. You know, that basically is like, like like don't even don't even mention office building to me. You can imagine you can imagine that conversation occurring at some real estate funds. I think that you're going to see a, a lot of a lot of more money even that continue to pour in and seek from opportunities that are continue to be scalable, uh, because I think that the supply and demand fundamentals for our business are really, really interesting. I mean, where your downside is extremely protected. Like our historical churn in our portfolio, since we bought our first property in 2012, counting everything, no no footnotes for exceptions, less than 4% per annum. And that's so- That's 4%, wow, that's a, that's a great number. Is our churn. And the upside is, is, is almost unlimited. And partially of the, part of that is facilitated by the fact that things are getting smaller. So what, you, what used to take a whole floor, you can maybe fit into a cage in a co-location space, mm -hmm. but the customer doesn't really pay that much less for that cage than they did for the whole floor. So it creates opportunity, continued growth opportunities. So the combination, I think, of, of really managed downside and virtually unlimited upside potential, I think it's going to be, continue to be attractive to capital. That's great. Great answer. I think, Jerry, if for somebody who wants to get in the data center industry and kind of focus on this, what would your advice be? Because I think it's a great industry. I think more people should get involved in it. It's, it's definitely going to be each year, it becomes a bigger, bigger part of our business life and our personal life. So what do you, what's your advice on that? Hmm. It's interesting. I think there's a couple of routes that people can take. I think that, like, if I look back, I think about, like, okay, I studied business undergrad. I studied business in grad. I probably should study electrical engineering undergrad. So that'd probably be a good start because it, it affects so many things that we do. Or mechanical engineering. These things are super important and complement that with a business, maybe graduate degree or a minor or what have you. I think you can learn the rest of the business skills sort of on the job. Uh, I think that would be a really, really good start in terms of like, if you're still young enough to, to be able to make those choices. In terms of facility management, I think it becomes more and more important. I mean, we've had people that started with us on the facility side that have been promoted like maybe half a dozen times since they started with us. Wow. So I think there's a lot of upward mobility in that area. If you are really focused and willing to, to dig in and really gain a great understanding of what it takes to achieve operational excellence in a data center. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's excellent advice. I think, again, really what 
when you know, both you and I started this industry, considering where it is now, there's a lot of significant progress. So Jerry, this was a great conversation. We know you're super busy. Thank you for spending some time with us today. We'll keep in touch and really appreciate you being on the podcast. Jim, I really appreciate the opportunity and I wish you luck. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Trends 24-7 Leaders. To learn more about technology trends, you can follow me on LinkedIn. You can also read my book, Tech Trends 24-7 and the Impact of COVID-19, which is rated a must-read book by CIO Insight. The book is available for purchase on Amazon or on our website, Tech Trends 24-7. When conducting research for the book, I was inspired to see how technology innovation was making a positive difference in people's lives. As a result, in 2020, I founded Beacon of Hope 365. Our mission is to leverage technology to help people in need. More information on the charity can be found on beaconofhope365.org. Thanks again for tuning into the episode and a big thank you to my entire podcast team, Lindsay Sauert, Brianne Lunghammer, and Sal Forcina. See you on the next episode.